Welcome to FASD Hope, a podcast about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder through the lens of parent advocates with over 18 years of lived experience. FASD Hope provides awareness, information, and inspiration to those people whose lives have been touched by FASD. And I'm the host of FASD Hope, Natalie Vecchione. Welcome to today's episode. On today's episode of FASD Hope, I'll be speaking with Aubrey Page. Aubrey Page is an FASD educator, disability advocate, and a parent mentor. Aubrey has been a treatment-level foster parent for four years and noticed that many of her kids had similar symptoms that were not exactly trauma. As one of her children received an FASD diagnosis, her eyes were open to the prevalence of this disability. She has trained over 1,000 people on fetal alcohol spectrum disorders and provides resources to help families feel successful. I'm so happy to be talking with Aubrey today. I am beyond thrilled to be talking with my friend slash, I like to call her the Jedi Master, uh, just mentor in advocating for FASD, Aubrey Page, who is in Ohio, and uh, welcome her onto our second episode of FASD Hope. Thank you for being here today, Aubrey. Oh, I'm so glad we get to chat again. So... Aubrey is going to educate us just about the facts, the facts that we need to know so we can be prepared when people ask us about FASD. And I also asked her if we can also add a little bit of hope to the big facts, because that's going to be a big focus of this series is not only educating and supporting, but providing what I like to call snippets or big chunks of hope where we can, because it's so essential in this community. So Aubrey, let's just start talking a little bit about the work you've done recently, especially that awesome viral, hopefully viral video, Red Shoe Rush, (laughs) uh, that was released on September 9th on FASD Awareness Day. Let's just talk a little bit about the work you've done, and then we'll dive into the facts. Yeah, so I started doing trainings about FASD um, about a year ago. And I, you know, when I started, I was like literally going to give trainings and then occasionally advocate in my very local community. Um, But COVID changes a lot for a lot of people. So um, now I give online trainings. And in the last year, I've trained over a thousand people on FASDs, um, mostly by partnering with organizations, uh, foster agencies, um, developmental disability services, mostly in Ohio. Um, and it's been a really great opportunity to broaden um, who knows about this, because very often the people who know about FASD are the parents who are parenting it. And we need to be more preventative in that we are telling people who are professionals, who are parents who might parent it, who are teachers. This may come across and across your desk as a case, I guess. And, um, and this is the, the different way you can look at this child to help the whole family be more successful. And so in that online effort, uh, growing and expanding who I was talking to, um, I started working a lot on Instagram to engage people outside of our FASD community. And so we wanted to do something kind of big for FASD Awareness Month, which is the month of September. And so I talked with my little, our little mom group and Natalie gave me an idea and then 
Melissa gave me an idea and we just kind of pushed it all together and we came out with a video that was fun because of the music and um, the nature of the video. It was a, it, we did the don't rush challenge, which is something a lot of people were doing on social media a while back. And the music's cool and we were changing our clothes and, um, and then also adding in facts about FASD. And the goal was to reach outside of people who are directly involved with FASD and get them to learn. Um, so whenever anyone would comment, oh my gosh, I didn't know anything about FASD until I watched this. That's like the biggest compliment because that's what we are trying to do is make this information more accessible to more people. And last count, how many views did we have? Um, so we have, we have about 50,000 impressions right now. Yeah. That is amazing. That is amazing. Yes. If you come along this video, if you come along on Instagram or out on, uh, it's on YouTube, like it and share it because it, it is For a sure. great video. Aubrey, you did an amazing job. You and Melissa just putting in, making it fun, but also putting in important statistics and important facts about FASD. So this is a good segue. Let's talk about the facts about FASD and let's talk about some of the things we shared in that video. So people know the prevalence, how it is a public health crisis, and also how it is an invisible disability. Yeah, I think that was something that really grabs people's attention. If I have only a couple minutes to talk to someone about FASD, I'm going to talk about how prevalent it is. So in 2018, there was a study that came out from UNC that kind of broadened our understanding of how prevalent it was. And they studied thousands of first graders all across the country and found that a conservative estimate of the number of individuals that are, could be diagnosed with FASD, these kids were not previously diagnosed necessarily, was two to 5%. A less conservative number was three to 10. That's astronomical. I mean, that is so big. If you're talking about 5% of a dollar, you're like, I mean, it's only five cents, but like, that realistically, when we're talking about human beings, there are no other um, disabilities that match in that number. Even FASD is two and a half times as common as autism. And autism is something that we kind of generally are talking about as a society. And of course, individuals who are parenting kids on the spectrum would not necessarily agree with that, but it is, it's part of a conversation. And so we want to get FASD there. We want to get people talking about FASD. Um, so 5% of the general population is um, who is affected by FASD. And another misnomer is that um, this is something that affects one socioeconomic group more than the other. And that study found that that was not necessarily the case. So there are, in fact, um, white middle-class college-educated moms that have children with FASD. In fact, that population in specific is at most risk for drinking during pregnancy. So Drinking, um, obviously alcohol consumption during pregnancy causes FASD, but it is a risk factor. So the, the awesome thing is if you don't drink during pregnancy, there will be no risk of having your child having FASD. If you do drink during pregnancy, there are other risk factors like nutrition and stress and other teratogens like marijuana can amplify the effects of alcohol, but it's not kind of a one and done thing. Historically, we had believed that FASD or fetal alcohol syndrome, which is the historic term for it, um, was a disability that was attained by children of alcoholics, that all of the kids had facial features and that the effects of the disability were very severe. And what we know now is that less than 10% of the kids um, present with facial features. The facial features can come and go at different points in a child's life. Um, we know that the, the alcohol consumption can be very early in pregnancy and in very small amounts. So we're not talking about the children of alcoholics. We're talking about the children of women who are socially drinking before they even knew that they were pregnant. 
Um, and that is, um, has been studied and is anecdotally true for many of the women that I work with as well. Um, and then we also know that FAS is just one of many diagnoses. So now we have expanded the term to fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, spectrum disorder, meaning that there are five different diagnoses in America that can fall under that. Um, and it helps better encompass all the different symptoms that we see with kids as well. And the hope in those statistics, so first of all, those statistics are sobering and they are, they reflect the crisis of FASD in the United States and in the world. I think that many of us, again, we have misconceptions. We had misconceptions about FASD and so many people out there are still under the impression that it's fetal alcohol syndrome. And it, like you said, it, it's only severe drinking or a child of an alcoholic that FASD is a spectrum disorder. It affects everybody differently. And I can say the hope in that people are learning more correctly about what FASD is. My personal experience, I can say that I remember about a year ago, I would just periodically Google FASD, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. And the first thing that would always come up would be the picture of the baby with an FAS, with, with full-blown FAS. And then it would say fetal alcohol syndrome. So I want to say maybe about six months ago, I think it might've been even a little later than that. I, again, just would Google FASD. I guess enough people spoke up to Google. Mm -hmm. They changed mm -hmm. it. And they did. Actually, that was a movement. So yeah. another mom. Yeah. And I'm so thrilled. And I actually, I think I, I, I might've even participated in that. It's, it was on social media somewhere, but they changed it. It's FASD. And their number one link is like the CDC government on the full explanation of FASD and, and the different diagnoses that fall under FASDs. Let's just talk a little bit about things that people may see or experience as symptoms in someone who has an FASD? Yeah, so very often the, the most common misdiagnosis I would think would be ADHD. So a lot of times we're seeing um, hyperactivity, impulsivity, and executive functioning challenges, and all of those are present with ADHD. Um, and so there are definitely kids with FASD that um, have a comorbid diagnosis, and they actually do have both, but very often that's also a misdiagnosis as well big difference there being the causal factor, like how did it come to be? Um, but also FASD, I had a doctor tell me it's like ADHD plus, which I think is kind of putting it lightly. Sometimes I flippantly say that it's like ADHD and autism were smushed together. Um, but this, it, it does include those major symptoms of ADHD. We also see things like social cognition. So um, like social skills in kids can be really challenged. And so sometimes we'll see kids who are chronologically one age, but developmentally a lot lower than that. And so they have a hard time interacting with their peers. And so we'll see um, maybe escalations and temper tantrums beyond their toddler years, um, which will lead people to think that the kid is like, oh, they're a brat or they're making bad choices or whatever, but really they just can't process the world around them like the world expects them to be able to. So that's really challenging. Um, receptive and expressive language skills are usually in a deficit. Actually, expressive language skills usually are doing well. It's the receptive language skills that are struggling. And so receptive language is like when someone's explaining something to us, our ability to process that information and utilize it. And so a lot of times what we'll see in classroom settings is that 
kids will be able to repeat back what they just heard if they can remember it, um, but they can't necessarily use that information. Um, and that's a, that's a very, that's a multi-step brain function to begin with. And a lot of that has to do with executive functioning, um, but receptive language can be tested for, so that's helpful. Um, memory, usually their long-term memory is good with the twist. So short-term memory often is at a deficit. So working memory, short-term memory. And sometimes when you have your memory is challenged, you can have these gaps and that gap can cause your brain to fill it in. And this is called confabulation. And so what I see a lot of times is the long-term memory is very vibrant, um, but sometimes things can be misplaced because of our misunderstanding of something that happened or the confabulation that happened right when it did. Um, so the memory is affected in a couple different ways. Um, motor skills for sure. So you're gonna see their vestibular sense or their proprioceptive sense is off. This may be a kid that's involved in OT early on that they're a little bit later to walk. Sometimes they're like all over the place and in everything and motor skills are definitely not a factor, um, but other times it is. There are physiological things that can be different about the body because of prenatal alcohol exposure. So things like um, organ defects, like heart defects, seizures are very common, comorbid diagnosis. The occurrence of hearing and vision problems in kids who have FASD is astronomically higher than the general population. So vision and, and hearing are both, um, they happen very early in development. And so those, those women who didn't know that they were pregnant yet, a lot of times that's where we're seeing um, the effects. And so, um, but those are very common. There's of course much more complex physiological differences for some kids. Um, it is a brain-based whole body disability. Cognition. So in our in our old understanding, like we talked about before with FAS, we in our head thought, you know, this, these are kids who have very low cognitive skills. You know, they're, they, they show these pictures of these kids who look like they can't even walk on their own. And that's not at all the kids that I work with. Um, and so cognitive skills can be at a deficit, but actually 70% of kids on the spectrum have an IQ higher than 70. And 70 is our nationally accepted threshold of what we say, if you have an IQ below 70, then you have an intellectual disability. So we don't want to like kind of put all our eggs in the cognition basket, because if we do, we could definitely be missing kids who actually are even very bright. There was a woman that was interviewed on another podcast who got straight A's through high school. I did not get straight A's through high school. So she's clearly much smarter than I am. And, and she has FASD and struggles in many other parts of her life. Even if you have a higher cognition, you can still struggle academically because of the executive functioning piece, the social cognition piece, the receptive language piece, all of that can be a struggle. And then probably the one that is one of the harder symptoms for parents um, and that I get um, <laughs> a lot of messages about is affect regulation or mood regulation. So um, sometimes these children can't, um, like we're at zero and we're at 100 in 0.2 seconds. And regulating our mood can be very difficult. And especially when you're being asked to do something that your brain is not capable of, instead of like being like, I can't handle that or giving up quickly, like a, maybe a relatively typical child would do, this child may immediately escalate. And you could think all conditions are perfect. They're still escalating. And so affect regulation is something that we want to keep in mind as a symptom versus a willful behavior like this child is choosing to escalate all the time. It could be that their brain, the way that it grew is now misfiring and saying, now is the time you have to fight. And that, that can be a, a big struggle for parents for sure. So the twist of hope in these facts, these all of these facts that you're sharing with me, I think that 
as a parent or a professional or anyone whose lives has been touched by an individual having an FASD, there are so many factors involved. You want to do more to treat the root symptoms versus mm-hmm. what we think were behaviors, you know, right. historically people just thought of someone that, that had an FASD, if they didn't consider that to be the case as, Oh, they're just behaving badly or, or they're just, they're just doing the wrong thing versus, okay. It's not that somebody doesn't want to do it. It's they can't do it. Right. And, and, and when we accept that and when we get training as, as parents, caregivers, professionals, when we get training, like trainings you're offering, like trainings that are offered by so many different organizations, once we learn that, it really helps us to accommodate and make the individual's life a better fit. Yeah, no, I think this is an, uh, a metaphor that I use sometimes in training and may help put this in perspective. So um, so I used to be in the Navy and I used to drive ships. And so if I put you on the bridge of a ship and said, you need to get us across the Atlantic, you got two weeks. And you were like, okay, but I don't know how to drive. And I'm like, I don't care, figure it out. You got two weeks. And then every couple hours I came up and yelled at you about how you weren't getting us across the Atlantic. You would probably be pretty frustrated, but... If I recognize that you don't have that skill and I teach it to you or I have patience with you and we do it together, different ways that we can work and accommodate that you don't have that skill, it's going to be a much more enjoyable journey across the Atlantic, right? So as parents, if we go in assuming that our kids should know this or that they're willfully trying not to understand or or execute whatever we're asking them to do, then we will be frustrated and they can tell. Usually our kids are very emotionally perceptive. So the hope in knowing about symptoms is that we can recognize them as symptoms and have grace and patience for that versus, and I'm not saying that that is an easy thing to, to have, it's right? The in the moment, things. it's very difficult, right? Oh, the hardest my, thing. Oh my gosh, it is. <laughs> but it is, if I did not have that information, I think of this often of the kids that I've parented. If I didn't have the symptomatic information, I don't know if they would have stayed with me as long as they did because I would have thought that they were just not trying hard enough and how tragic for them to be put into this box of this is what we expect you to do and we think you're neurotypical and so perform, right? So I think having the symptoms and knowing what they are is a huge strength. And let's talk about brain-based neurobehavior focused caregiving parenting strategies. Uh, what do you think are the biggest takeaways and, and why somebody should be trained in, in learning these types of strategies and working with kids, teens, adults that have an FASD? Yes. A lot of times I have parents coming to me who may even know the symptoms, um, but still have a hard time in the moment recognizing that that symptom is affecting how the child is, um, you know, reacting in any given situation. Um, and so it's really a lot of us retraining ourselves. So many of us were raised with this mindset that if you just try hard enough, you can accomplish anything. Um, and while that is really sweet and kind and generous, it may not be true for some kids and putting that expectation on them can result in more aggressive behavior. So I've had several kids that have moved in with me who had ODD diagnoses, but they actually had FASD. And it was because the people around them were expecting that they performed at this neurotypical level, right? They were not accommodating their disability. And so I think us working on whatever our own biases are that says, 
no, you should be able to do this. Um, take a step back. Those, any of those brain-based trainings will help you reassess what you're thinking, what you're expecting of your kids, what they may be able to provide, reminding you of their developmental stage versus their chronological stage. These are symptoms, not behaviors. It's not that they won't do something, it's that they can't. Rephrasing all of that is very important and, a, and an important reminder, right? Like when I give training, I'm like teaching myself, oh yeah, oh yeah, I should do that at home, right? Because it's so hard to remember in the moment. So any of the brain-based parenting stuff is gonna help make that um, a more realistic thing to practice. Let's talk about accommodations. Why are they so necessary and so important when we are parenting or working with an individual, a child, a teen, an adult that has an FASD? So um, I'll, sometimes I'll hear from parents things like, um, well, actually I've had, I mostly take teens and preteens and, and foster care and um, I will have them brought to me saying, well, they've stolen gift cards off the dining room table like five times. And my question is, why are there gift cards on the table five times, right? Part of brain-based parenting is recognizing our role in it and providing accommodations for someone when we know that they're going to struggle with something is part of that. So if we know that a child is going to struggle with impulsivity with regards to taking something off of a table that looks very attractive and it's just sitting there and it doesn't have anyone's name on it, so it's hard to tell what's going on, um, that we know that that's going to be the case, so we take it away. Uh, like we don't leave the gift card on the table; we keep the gift card in our purse or somewhere else safe, right? That's a really uh, basic example of something that can really drive someone to literally remove a teenager from their home because they were not willing to provide the accommodation. It drives them; it drove them that crazy to have this behavior happen. So, what if we could preemptively? have proactive strategies instead of reactive strategies that said, hey, I know this is something that this child's going to struggle with. So I'm going to remove that as something they struggle with. So for example, if you have a kid who can get really cranky when they're hungry, even a, tip, a kid, parent of a neurotypical kid would feed them snacks on a regular basis to fight that, right? They're like, I don't want a hunger meltdown, so I am going to provide a snack. That is an accommodation, right? And we kind of think as accommodations as like, oh, well, the world won't accommodate you. I've heard this argument before, I guess, I, not often, but I do. And it's, it's a hard one because I agree the world won't accommodate them. But if they're in a world that won't accommodate their needs, then maybe they need to be put in a different environment. Like maybe that job that's not going to accommodate them isn't the right job for them. And as parents, our most important thing is to connect with our kids. And if we're constantly in a state of fighting because we are trying to get them to do things that they're incapable of doing, we won't be able to do that. So if that means that I need to lock up the gift card so we don't fight about that, like that's the most important thing. If I need to put up a list of the steps that we have to take when we take a shower so that we don't fight about that, then that's the most important thing. But what we can't do is say, I'm not willing to accommodate because most of the world won't accommodate and so we're going to struggle. So I think that providing the accommodations, although it can be a tough jump leap into it, because some parents are, I, sh I shouldn't have to do this for this child, um, it, it long term makes a better home environment. And again, that's going back to the, the shift in mindset of that this is a brain-based disability because this is a brain-based whole body disability. No, you bring up a you bring up a good point though because um, I got interviewed for 
for um, a TV thing last year. And, you know, when you do stuff and you don't even think about it afterwards, you're like, that was pretty good. So they asked me, why is it important that we talk about this? And I said, if we had a kid that was blind in the classroom, we wouldn't yell at them so many times that they, we expected them to see the board, right? That's ridiculous. If you think about it, it is crazy to just yell at a blind kid that they should be able to see the board. But we literally do this with brain-based disabilities. We literally say, you just need to try harder. Whether it's dyslexia, whether it's ADHD, whatever it is, that's our expectation. So what really happens with a child who is blind is we accommodate them. We provide different, there's so many technologies that are an option for a child that has low vision or blindness. So when we have a brain-based disability with a child, we need to look for similar things as well. Let's talk about FASD in foster care because we know that the statistics are higher in foster care, but you and I have had this discussion about reasons why and just observations that you've seen. Let's talk about FASD in foster care. So um, a lot of times I get contacted by um, foster and adoptive parents mostly, and I think that the reason for that is twofold. I think part of it is it's very easy to talk about an FASD diagnosis for a child that you did not carry. But I also think that um, FASD is a leading cause for children being removed from the home and also being disrupted in foster care. Because if we're talking about all this brain-based disability that even me with my myriad of resources um, have a hard time parenting sometimes, then a person who is in poverty, which is a lack of resources, is going to struggle even more. Um, and so if we can look at a family, that a biological family we're trying to keep together and give them the resources um, help gain perspective. We don't even have to mention the, the acronym, right? We don't have to say FASD in order to help a family. We can just talk from a brain-based perspective um, to help keep a family together. That would be great. But realistically, what happens more often than not is that um, a child is deemed to be in a neglectful or abusive situation and removed. I actually was in a um, conference a few months ago where they said that 3% um, of kids are removed for abuse. Um, the vast majority are for neglect. And so um, if we can look at the, the, the family as it is and help provide accommodations for the child and, and also for the parents, because very often we're looking at a biological situation for FASD, a diagnosis for the child is a diagnosis for mom. And so we need to make sure that we can look at the parents and see if we need to provide any accommodations for them. I don't know how often I've worked with families through a state or county level, and they've said, mom didn't know you could put appointments in your calendar on your phone. If we can do that for mom and teach her that skill, like how great, like we are taking children for med medical neglect, but we aren't addressing the root of the problem, right? So my big goal is to keep families together. A study was done prior to the expansion of the, or our understanding of how prevalent FASD is. Um, it was done right before that study came out. And it found that um, children with um, FASD or children in foster care are 17 to 19 times more likely to have an FASD than children outside of foster care. Um, and I think that 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 study from UNC is going to change those numbers a little bit because now we're recognizing that it's common amongst all socioeconomic groups, despite foster care being um, primarily prevalent, uh, um, filled with children from poverty. But when we get a kid that's now in foster care, they're in foster care, they're in a foster home, and that foster home has no training on FASD, then they're probably going to think that this kid is, doesn't want to listen, doesn't want to make good choices, doesn't want to, you know, do whatever they're supposed to do. 
And so I see a lot of disruptions, which disruptions in foster care means they ask the child to get moved to a different home. And then when I go to look at kids who are preteens and teens who are awaiting adoption, I've looked at probably a dozen profiles and there is not a single kid's profile that I looked at that did not meet criteria for FASD. So these are the kinds of things that we as a society, we as people who care about this community need to recognize this also. How do we help keep families together? How do we help support them in their biological families? How do we help inform foster parents? How do we help inform adoptive parents and give everybody the tools so that we, these kids can have better long-term outcomes? And something hopeful that has come from foster care legislation actually comes from Minnesota. Uh, they recently passed into law, I believe it was in August of this year, that not only will every child and teenager in the foster care system be screened for an FASD that will be required by law, but also there will be training required for foster parents in Minnesota to know about FASD and to, to know, understand these basics of the, of the disability. So that is hopeful. And if that can happen oh, yes. in Minnesota, how amazing would it be if it could happen in, in the rest of the United States? And, and I'm sure that there are advocates like you and me and all over that are working to talk to our legislators, our local legislators, and how we can get legislation like that passed. Because if we can better support foster families and adoptive parents, as well as better screen and have, you know, the diagnosis, then hopefully we can also reunify some of those families that, like you said, just, they just need the supports. They need that assistance in parenting so that they understand how to, um, how to accommodate. Yeah, I think that legislation is going to have ripple effects. Um, and um, Proof Alliance, who worked on um, executing it over a series of years, they've kind of built up to it. They started with training for the foster parents and kind of have gone from there. If you have a, if you have to have a place in every county that can screen children for FASD, then you will also have a place that can screen biological children. And so you, you will have expanded the resources just because of that one piece of legislation, which is incredible. So I am hoping that that will expand at any time we have broader numbers. So over years, Minnesota will start gaining numbers as to what it looks like for their kids in foster care who are all screened. As we start getting bigger and bigger numbers, guess what follows numbers? Money. You don't get money for a disability that affects 0.1% of the population, which is what we used to believe. And so now that we know it affects a lot more kids, we have to prove that it really is impacting our society. Talk to our legislators and reach out to them and say, we know the numbers are high. We know this is impacting our neighborhood. We have to have legislation that matches that. Absolutely. And I interviewed Sarah Messel, who's the ED of Proof Alliance uh, a couple months ago. And she said something that I definitely know you can relate to. She said that the best advocates are the parent advocates because uh, parent advocates not only know what, know the journey and know the experience, but legislators will listen to parents because of their experience and because of their stories. So let's talk about your journey and my journey into advocacy. And for other parents out there listening who are on the fence or other caregivers and want to start something, but they don't know how, let's switch from fact to a little piece of advice. What advice do you have for, for people who 
want to make a difference and help the FASD community, but they don't know how to start. So what I've learned this year, because it's been kind of a crash course, right, is that my state legislators are not that far away. And when I mean not that far away, I mean, yes, he literally lives down the road, but also they're really easy to get a hold of. And if they're not, then that's a problem because technically they work for you. And so um, I participated in a DD advocacy day back in March, right before everything shut down and reached back out recently as I was encouraging other people to reach out to their legislators. I also reached out to mine and now we're working on some stuff together. So, um, and it wasn't like, it, it wasn't that difficult, but you're right about the parent piece because I walk in and I can slap a piece of a picture of my kids on the table and be like, these kids are real. They're in your district and legislation affects them. And I think that when you have a professional come in, they're like, oh yeah, so many kids on my caseload, but it doesn't feel like a real person. And so it, it is much more meaningful that way. And it can be, your story is compelling. Um, so I, I would encourage people to reach out to their state legislators. Um, and if they're not getting back to you, be persistent. Um, and what we're doing in Ohio, our goal is to first establish um, a law requiring signage at places that, that sell alcohol. That's like baby step one. There is no teeth to this legislation, but we are just trying to get it passed so we can help women have that information when they go to buy alcohol while they're um, trying to conceive or pregnant. So that's step one. And then we just keep going. We keep building on that. And so start small and reach out to your legislator and see what you can partner on together. That is great advice. That is great advice because we also, as parents, are so exhausted and just so tapped out. So just thinking in terms of, okay, I'm just going to start small. There are never enough voices in, in advocating the FASD community. You and I both know that, and that's why you and I are, are both doing our respective gigs. You know, we, we, more people need to know. More people need to be educated. More people need to be informed. I'm just so thankful that I know you and that you have like inspired me to do advocating through podcasting and, and advocating through helping others, you know, and, and we both know, we as moms know that this is not an easy journey. It's not a pretty journey. However, it is a journey that there is beauty in a lot of different ways that, that are unexpected. We also know that our kids the world seems to focus on what they don't have. And we have the gift of being able to focus on the beauty and the gifts that they do have. So I'm going to end our kind of, here's the facts with, let's talk about gifts. Let's talk mm. about some of the things that people that have an FASD really shine at. You know, I, I like to call it superpowers because um, <laughs> I think they are. Let's just talk about that for a minute. Let's, let's end on that before we uh, wrap up our conversation. What are some things that really stand out with kids, teens, adults that have an FASD? Oh, for sure. I think that, um, <laughs> I think that one of the things that many of us in the community have noticed across the board is that our kids, when they're feeling safe, tend to be incredibly kind and generous and gregarious and just like, the kind of kid that like every adult's like, oh my gosh, they're so sweet. Um, because they, um, they are very emotionally intuitive. Um, oftentimes, of course, every kid is different. Um, and so I see so much of that with the, the individuals that I've worked with on the spectrum. And um, I, I just love that piece. Like I, I, so often we get told the end of the story, right? Oh, 
criminal involvement, et cetera, et cetera. But this kid at their core wants to be this loving, kind kid. We've got to support them in the right situation. So of course we have this, they're you know, often very gregarious and kind and, and want to be so helpful. Um, they're, that we oftentimes have kids who are like really good at art or really good at music or really good with tech skills. Um, they, they have these areas that they, they shine amongst any of their peers. Um, and I think that that's so great that we as parents can focus on that because then the kid doesn't feel like they get seen for the worst aspects of their day. If we spent our day as adults only looking at our worst parts, which if you're an Enneagram one, maybe you do as well, but for the average person, they're not judging themselves as harshly as we are. And so um, if our kids can see their awesomeness, like kind of amplified and we can nurture that. And um, like I talked to somebody recently um, about teaching them in that way. Like if they're, if music really speaks to them, teach them using music. If art really speaks to them, teach them using art. Um, so highlighting those awesome things about our kids um, can be a great way to help encourage them and help them feel like valuable members of society. We talked during our last conversation that um, oftentimes our, we see our kids, our kids want to be needed by the world. And if we don't nurture a strength, they don't feel like they offer the world anything. And so nurturing a strength is incredibly important to us as we parent these kids into adulthood. So I like to use the hashtag focus on strengths, but I like yours because yours is one step further, nurturing that strength, not only focusing on that strength or strengths, but nurturing and feeding that because that's Mm. so important for them to develop and, and to grow. And we know that our kids, they're not developing as quickly as, as their peers. However, they are still developing and they will still develop, you know, well into their twenties, late twenties. So if we can keep nurturing those strengths, those strengths will continue to grow. And I, I love hearing that. So that's going to be my new hashtag, not only focus on strengths, <laughs> but nurture the strengths. So Aubrey, I'm going to have you back. You know, I am. You're, you're just, you're my Jedi master. I like to joke and, and say that. You can't like, stop me from talking anyway. So. <laughs> so if you are listening and want to reach out to Aubrey Page, I'm going to let her share her information with you. And also you will find on FASDHope.com in our podcast notes section, you will find a lovely picture of Aubrey as well as her uh, link and information But Aubrey, I'm going to let you just wrap it up by uh, letting people know how they can get in touch with you. Yeah, so I am mostly on Instagram and I'm at Aubrey Page, F-A-S-D on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and Pinterest. That's a new thing for me. Um, I'm also have a YouTube channel at Aubrey Page, F-A-S-D Educator is how you can search for that. And I try to post a lot of my um, like interviews and stuff on there. So hopefully they can be a resource for people. And then I have a website that's aubreypage.org. Um, and that has my email address also that's info at Aubrey Page. So you can reach out to me any of the ways. Instagram, you're probably going to get the fastest answer. Um, but I, I hope that you will um, stay tuned and keep learning more about FASD with both Natalie and I, because there's a lot more to be shared, a lot more hope to be gained. Thank you. That's an amazing segue to end our episode. So Aubrey, thank you for being on our second show of FASD Hope. Again, like Aubrey said, not only do we hope to inform you and 
provide resources and, and help you out, but to also just give you hope in this journey, which is a long journey. However, there's beauty in this journey. Thanks again for listening to FASD Hope with Natalie Vecchione. If you like our show and want more information, check out FASDHope.com or please leave us a five-star rating and follow us on Podbean, iTunes, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Make sure you join us next week. And remember to be informed, take care, and always have hope.